You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Chris Dudley. Chris is an award-winning artist and illustrator in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he's the author of the children's book, Little Boogaloo Shrimp and the Clean Sweep. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Chris Dudley, and I am the creative director for Chris Dudley Art. I really focus on art and illustration. How has uh, 2023 been going for you so far? Uh, actually, it has been going amazing. Uh, the, the scope and range of projects that I've been working on have been just straight fun. The recent project has been Little Boogaloo Shrimp in the Clean Suite, which is with uh, Michael Chambers, who's famous from the breakdancing movie franchises. And it's been amazing. Yeah. Tell me some more about the book. Yeah. Well, it's I think the first book of its kind scoured the internet and i don't haven't seen a book like this uh one of the first books i've ever seen that focuses on break dancing the premise behind the book is that it teaches kids responsibility and priority using break dancing and also it highlights uh there's a shout out of a lot of the actors from the breaking movies uh Adolfo quinones uh, bruno falcon and sadly we lost both of them recently and just all of the, the main characters from the breaking movie, but also a lot of other individuals. And in addition to having that subject matter about breakdancing, because a lot of people think it kind of went by the wayside, but it's still hugely popular. And also it will be will debut in the Olympics uh, in 2024. Yeah. And so it's still a huge thing. And there's a shout out to the Olympics in the book. Uh, actually, the final spread, everybody's breakdancing in Paris with the Eiffel Tower in the background. So, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen a book like this. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. It also, if I could add, it also gives kids, it's more than just a children's book. It gives kids a little bit of history about the background of breaking its roots in New York. Also gives some terminology of uh, breaking, like what a freeze is, what a, a go down is. So, it's a little bit more than just just the story. Nice. I remember this was back in 2005. What was I working there? Yeah, 2005, I was working for the state of Georgia here at, in Atlanta, working at the Georgia World Congress Center. And I remember we had just hired this white girl as a PR rep or something. And I mean, like, cute, short, bubbly white girl. I was like, oh, she seems really nice. And the weird thing, well, not the weird thing, but as I was talking to her and I asked her kind of what, what her hobbies was. And she was like break dancing. And I'm like, <laughs> you're a break dancer. Like you look like a, a UGA sorority grad. Like, come on, you're not a break dancer. <laughs> and sure enough, she would, it would be in a sort of weird way, but like sometimes she would do moves just like in the office just to show us that, yeah, I am a break dancer. Yeah, She invited gotcha. me to like a few events that she was breaking at. And oh, it, nice. it was so weird. Cause sometimes we'd be in these like, 
board meetings, like in a like legit boardroom with chairman and stuff. And then someone's like, oh, you're a break dancer. Why don't you bust a move for us? And I'm like, in a way, this is so embarrassing. But also it's like, well, at least we're not asking the black person to do it. So I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> let me sit back and watch the show, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think you told me that like part of what you're doing with the book involves like a crew or something here in Atlanta. Yes. Uh, they're in Georgia. I think they're near Ackworth. Okay. Um, the Rockwell Dance Academy. And it's interesting that you mentioned that the young lady there was a break dancer, but uh, the Rockwell Dance Academy is led by Honey Rockwell and Orco. Honey Rockwell is a staple name as a B-girl. Uh, actually, just last year, they were both inducted into the Breaking Hall of Fame. And so uh, B-girls definitely have a place as well. I mean, she's one of the most well-known. She was with the original Rocksteady crew in uh, South Bronx, New oh, York. Nice. Yeah. So we partnered with them and we've got some things uh, in the works. So it's really exciting to get that Georgia connection going. Yeah. We'll make sure to put a link to the book also in the show notes okay. so people can check that out. Aside from like this new project, like how are things different for you this year than they were last year? It has been just ramping up with projects. Uh, last year, you know, obviously we had a steady flow of projects, variety. This year, the Children's books have have uh, just been packed. <laughs> I mean, I'm booked out with children's books, booked out away. So it's fun, you know, where you complete one project and then you can look forward to the next one. But I've got, I think, uh, four or five that are already in the queue uh, confirmed. And so I look forward to working with each of those authors as well. Nice. I mean, with everything that you've got going on now, like what does the summer look like? Is it more work or you got any plans? Uh, yeah, a little, a little vacation, you know, a little relaxation. I would do with the family <laughs> for the summer. I do have, I've got I have three girls and my wife. So we'll get a little, little relaxation in, but, but some work too, uh, especially with the release of this book, Little Boogaloo Shrimp and the Clean Sweep. Uh, we've got some events planned this summer as well. Some here in Michigan with a children's museum and another uh, bookstore and actually a, a local breakdancing crew. Actually, Michael Chambers there in, uh, Los Angeles, July 29th, I believe he's got a, an event with Barnes and Noble. So I may be flying out there uh, to support him on that. And but yeah, we've got, got a lot going on this summer. And then coming out of the summer, we look to get in. We're going to be partnering with some schools to get the books into schools as well. Very nice. So you got a lot planned coming up. Yes, sir. <laughs> Let's dive into into Chris Dudley art. I mean, you just mentioned you've got <clears throat> a bunch of these projects that are lined up. What does your creative process look like, like when you're working on a new project? Yeah, well, they all start similarly because uh, uh, we do a little bit of design, design work. Like we've designed some logos and so forth. We've got a team that does that, but also with the illustration. I like to start out old school with sketching. That's just uh, you know that's how I learned to draw. So that's part of my creative process with every project is starting out with sketching. I mean, if you, I can go into the the, the meat of like doing a, a children's book, if you like. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, basically we get a manuscript and that gets, it goes through an approval process. We don't just take any manuscript. It's got to just to be real with you. When I read the manuscript, if images start popping into my head, it's a go. If mm -hmm. they don't, it's probably not a go. And that's just a, nothing against the author, but it has to resonate with me because it's got to be a fun project that I'm looking forward to do. Yeah. to doing. And so from there, we, the manuscript checks out and we want to, to bid on that. From there, we will establish the illustration description. So that's the, okay, what imagery is going to go along with what portions of the text, especially if it's a children's picture book. And once we nail that down, I'll do comp sketches. And that's where you kind of establish the composition. Well, actually prior to that, we design the characters, like the main characters and see exactly what they're going to look like. You know, is it a eight-year-old African-American boy, or does it doesn't have to be a, a little girl who's three years old and she has a puppy. So we have to figure out the dynamics of the characters. What are they going to look like? What time period are we in? Are we in the 2000s? Are we in the 80s, like with our recent book here? And so we establish a character, and then we do composition sketches of establishing what each scene is going to look like. And those get approved by the author along the way. So they're heavily involved with the creative process so that I don't just come up with with the finished project and then hope they like it. They're mm -hmm. involved along the way 
so that there's no surprises on either end. And then from there, we go to final sketches. So we start to flesh out, this is exactly what this spot illustration or this full page or this spread is exactly going to look like and the details of it, the, it does need to be background and so forth. And from there, after the client approves that, we do the line work. That's where we kind of finalize it. Almost, uh, were you familiar with like how a coloring book looks, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have the, the, the simple black lines. Yep. We finish out the book looking like that. That way the client gets to see, okay, this is exactly how things are going to look before we add color. And that way, any adjustments can be made along the way uh, if need be. So they, they approve each process. And then we kind of get into the color theory because you can't just throw colors onto the imagery. It has to make sense visually. Uh, also, colors like such as red uh, is going to attract attention. So you, you wouldn't just arbitrarily use that just because you want it red. And, uh, and sometimes that has to be explained to the client as well, because they may think, I want a pink this and a blue that. Well, based on color theory, those won't work with the composition. So, right. uh, and then we just kind of move to, you know, move toward the, the formatting process. And then the text is added. And I take the text into consideration as well, though, when I'm designing the composition so it doesn't look forced later. I make sure I allow spacing for that. But yeah, that's kind of how we move through a project. And then from there, it goes to post-production. And then we have a book so it's it's way more than just just like art and illustration like you are oh, really yeah. like seeing it through the entire like process yes. the entire publishing yes. process yeah from concept to completion is what we call it <laughs> yeah from the initial I, idea to a finished book yeah i mean you mentioned getting the clients involved with it like i'm pretty sure this is a probably an ex- maybe not an exhaustive process for them but how is it for them being able to kind of see the book come together step by step like this. It's amazing because it's no secret. Most people haven't learned the the skill of being able to draw, let alone to illustrate, which Mm -hmm. there's a difference because with illustration, you're telling a story with the imagery. And so when you flesh out a character for a client, I mean, it's so satisfying because they kind of have it in their head, but, but they can't see it. And so when you can present that to them, it's like, yes, that, that's exactly what I want. You know, you know, it's just so gratifying for them. And then to see that character then doing things throughout the book, I mean, they, their eyes just light up. You know, so it's a, it's a pleasure working with them and, again, keeping them involved in the process. Now, it looks like you do a lot of, of children's book illustrations. What draws you to this genre? Well, having kids. <laughs> like I said, I got three girls. They, they're a little bit older now, to the late teens, mid and late teens. But uh, I actually spent, and actually, if you were to look on my website, right, com, I spent about 15, 20 years doing ex- almost exclusively uh, realism. I mean, very detailed graphite drawings. I did art shows and jury exhibitions and all of that. And so I use that knowledge actually as I kind of segued into, I still do do some of that, but the children's books, you know, reading books to my girls. And I actually had to learn how to illustrate better. I knew it a little bit, but I had to really dive into it. So I've been kind of doing that for the past 10 years now, and it's kind of taken over, <laughs> really. How do you stay organized with with like a lot of these projects? Because I would imagine as you're saying this whole process, do you do just like one book at a time? Are you juggling multiple books? Like, How do you keep all of that sort yeah. of managed effectively? Well, some of them, uh, will overlap a little bit, but it depends on what phase of the process. Honestly, for me personally, the uh, most challenging part is the initial part, coming up with the concept of what the imagery is going to look like. Because once you've established that, you've then created a roadmap for yourself. And then it's just following the roadmap. It's almost like, you know, plotting out your course somewhere. That's the hardest part, kind of. Where am I going to go with this? But then once you plot out the course, okay, now it's just following this path that I've laid out. And, you know, there may be some tweaks along the way. But uh, and with that, it's important, obviously, not to overbook. We've all heard the saying, you know, under promise, over deliver. And mm-hmm. so I really, we really focus on with my team, especially my, my assistant, not making promises that would be too difficult to even try to make happen. You know, then you're, you're disappointing clients. So books, I, like I won't work on two or three at the same time. But they may overlap like, OK, if I finish this portion, now I can maybe bring in. Uh, but they will have different deadlines. You know, I don't have it where they're, they're all due at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keeping in balance. Yeah. And then we filter in some other 
relatively smaller projects in there while, while I may be working on a book, you know, like a one-off illustration or a design project. But, but I like to really focus on that client's project so they get the attention that it needs. And it's important to note, as you've alluded to, like you have a team, so this isn't a one-man kind of operation. Exactly. I, I could not do it by myself. Uh, I did in the past. Obviously, it was just me. I started well, way, way back before it was Chris Dunley Art uh, when I was 18, 19. And it was just me, you know, invoicing and trying to figure all this stuff out. But uh, I realized later that it stifled creativity doing all of those other administrative tasks. Now, I still do some, but by and large, I want to save my brain for the project. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as you said, starting out on your own, you want to try to do everything or try to tackle everything because you're just starting out. You want to establish yourself. But eventually, after a while, in order for you to really be able to to go further, you have to give up some control. You have to build a team like it's just a a necessary part of of being able to scale the work that you do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's necessary. Let's kind of, you know, switch gears a little bit here and learn more about you. Um, you kind of talked a bit about, you know, starting out. Yeah. You're born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Tell me about what that was like. Yes, it was uh, fun. My interest in art started very young. I had a cousin that drew, you know, a couple of cousins that drew a little bit. One was this phenomenal, phenomenal artist. And it amazed me that he could do that with a pencil. And it wasn't daunting like it may be to some people and in school you know I always drew and I I remember back in I think I was maybe in the kindergarten or first grade and a little weed of mine it was like a a stalk of grain or something that I drew and got accepted in the children's exhibition at the Grand Rapids Art Museum and so it's like that was a quote-unquote a first jury show right Mm -hmm. and it was accepted and so it's going to be on display downtown Grand Rapids at the art museum. And so when my my mom took me down there to see it and to see it displayed, it was just awe-inspiring. And they had the artwork separated by grade level. So, you know, mine was in the first, second graders. And then, and I remember walking and seeing, I remember stuff like yesterday, seeing the, like the 12th graders, you know, obviously their art advancement was far beyond my level, but it was so amazing that it was possible and it just sparked that that's possible. I didn't have the skill to do it, but it didn't deter me. It made me understand that's possible. Mm-hmm. I can get to that level. And so that's where it began. And it sounds like your family also really supported you in this too. Yeah. Family has always supported me. Even teachers. <laughs> I, I, I joke about it now. They they would let me draw in class as long as I did my work, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I had a, I've had a lot of support over the years. How has it been kind of working and cultivating your career in the same place where you grew up. Like, I feel like a lot of folks we have on the show may have, of course, started out one place and then ended up moving somewhere else. And that was where, you know, their career or their work kind of flourished. Like, what does it mean for you to still be in your hometown doing this work? Well, it's taken some time. I started out with, um, it was Dudley Graphics, actually, when I was 18, 18, 19. And I was doing t-shirt designs and it was all by hand. I didn't know graphic design or how to use a computer or anything. So I was drawing things, even drawing lettering and so forth. And later kind of rebranded. Actually, when I improved my drawing ability, <laughs> I was okay, but I, I wanted to learn how to draw much, much better. And so in my 20s, I said, I want to learn this and uh, really buckled down to improve my skill. But had some, obviously some success with that, you know, dealing with some businesses and so forth. But Later, that's when I started doing juried art shows. And I felt that if I could get into a juried art show, that somewhat vetted my skill set. And then some of these were hard to get into. They were hard to get into. So uh, that gave me kind of a little boost of confidence. And then figuring out how to make it sustainable, like you said, in your hometown and doing, you know, doing projects with companies. I actually did a whiteboard animation with a pharma, very large, I, I can't say the name, but pharmaceutical company. And so finding avenues in how to make it sustainable. And I was able to explore a lot of different avenues of art. I mean, it was design, it was drawing, there was some, you know, a little bit of animation working with some of that, mm-hmm. uh, but to make it where sustainable, even here locally. But then it, things did branch out where I started getting a little 
attention from those outside of Michigan. I worked with an author actually in Georgia and just some throughout the States. And that's when it's like, whoa, it, it opens you up to that global market. Yeah. Do you think it's been a benefit to you to kind of still do this work in Grand Rapids? Like, have you thought about, oh, well, what if I was in New York or even like in Detroit? Like if you stayed in Michigan? Yeah. Yes. I found it as a benefit because it puts me in a position to, you know, it sounds cliche, but to kind of give back, if you will, to the community versus, Mm -hmm. you know, when you move away, you're, you're not in touch with that local community anymore. So I've been able to be in contact with local artists that I know and uh, local authors Um, because I work with a lot of authors here in Michigan. So to be able to meet them, you know, in in some instances, face to face, you you can't replace that. It's worked out. You know, it's just worked out for me to stay here in Michigan and still have some of those connects outside. How big is Grand Rapids? I'm trying to think like population wise, how big? Ooh, offhand. I guess I should know this, right? No, no. Actually, it's the second. I didn't know I was getting a geography lesson here. It's the second largest city, uh, obviously behind Detroit. I mean, it's growing too. It's continuing to grow. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm curious about that because I've had folks that are on the show before that aren't in like these big metropolises. Like they're in, you know, smaller cities like Raleigh or or, you know, Grand Rapids, like you mentioned, I think I talked to another illustrator in Detroit. Okay. Oh, his name escapes. I think it's Sean Bell or something like that. But like talking about the benefit what or like one inherent benefit of being able to kind of do this work in a, you know, smaller community. I won't say small, but like smaller than a yes. big city is that yes. in a way, because you grew up there, people know you. So there's that sort of like reputation. Yes. But also, you yeah. kind of help serve as a beacon for like the next generation to see that what you're doing is possible right where they are. Like they don't have to move somewhere else or go somewhere else to achieve exactly. the kind of success that you've achieved. Yeah, exactly. That That is the key. And there, a lot of it is about developing your skill set, really getting your work seen. And so with the Internet and so forth, you know, I'm, I'm not old, but I grew up uh, without the Internet. <laughs> And so, uh, but now you have these different uh, vehicles that you can use to have your, your work seen really all over the world. Yeah. Before we, we get into that, I want to kind of stay a little bit in the pocket of like Dudley graphics, because I think it's important for our audience to really hear about what it was like to design really before personal computers and Photoshop and all that stuff was really like a thing like yeah. tell me about the like your early career of Dudley graphics because that was like roughly between like yeah. what 96 and like 2005 yes. 2006 something like that yep exactly yeah I started out uh I man I was 18 and I became a, a broker with a t-shirt company and I was doing the designing and like you said it was all by hand I mean it was free freehand drawing and then I would ink it and I would take actual ink drawings to my screen printer to get the the uh, camera ready, art, and so forth. And so if I had to make an adjustment, it, it was all by hand and cutting and pasting and white out. I did not know how to use a computer. I didn't have one. Uh, so it was the early days. I remember when I first uh, got a computer and trying to learn it, but I didn't really have the correct software. And then it's thought, okay, how do I input something in my computer? So I had to try to learn a scanner. And it was crazy. Um, one thing that really helped, I actually worked at a Kinko's, which mm. later became FedEx Kinko's and mm-hmm. which is now FedEx office. And I got a lot of uh, training actually in uh, graphic design and just kind of how those things worked. And that really helped me with uh, launching Dudley graphics, you know, and again, it was just in the design and t-shirt realm because my, my drawing ability honestly was, I would say above average, but above average was to the average person who doesn't draw. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a lot of ways to go as far as learning how to draw better. And, uh, and that's what prompted the, the rebrand is I felt, okay, my skills are way better than they were. So I, I can, yeah. I can go with this art thing. Oh, you took me back there. We talking about Kinko's. I remember that. Yeah. Fondly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, during that time, I was in high school, like right around that time. I was I was eighteen in ninety nine, so like a little bit later than than you were. Um, okay, yeah. But I mean, I I did come up also in that time of like life before the internet, 
like computers really. I mean, computers actually, when I was a kid, were almost like a toy. At least that's how they were sort of marketed or pushed. It was like, oh, this is like the fun thing you do at school in your free period. Or um, it would be, you know, VTech, the company VTech had all these like personal computer things. I had this big, (laughs) I had this big thing called a pre-computer 1000 that (laughs) had like a one line screen on it, had a full keyboard, but had a one line screen and it had a handle on it so you could like carry it (laughs) with you. And I, I mean, I think my mom wanted to throw that thing out the window because it could also make sound. And yes. so I was like learning sound because I, I also grew up like playing music, being a musician. So I'm like okay. learning how to play sound and code on this thing. And I know she wanted to launch that thing yeah. <laughs> out the window most days. But I, I say all that to say, you know, it's so different now when you look at like schools and, and even I think just like the yeah. general conversation around technology for children and designs like it's certainly something that people try to push their kids into as a viable career field or or a money-making thing or something like that really back then you know especially for black folks there was not a lot Mm -hmm. of examples like you had what Dwayne Wayne on on a different world you know maybe somebody that was featured in black enterprise if you had a subscription so there wasn't a lot around oh computers are a thing that you can use to like build your career like it wasn't a thing and i mean i feel like yeah. for listeners they should especially younger listeners like it just wasn't a thing like <laughs> yeah it wasn't it wasn't i think what is it what would you say 2000s before i think when the internet kind of came out for for everyday people uh, and people still didn't have like a computer in their home whereas yeah. now most people do but uh, you think about to have grown up or have grown up at a time where that you didn't have internet at home. You didn't have a computer at home even. So totally, it was a different different era. Yeah, or if you had an internet at home, it was via <laughs> mail order CD. Yeah, a- AOL. You get an AOL CD, you get a, a net zero disc in the mail or something like that. And that's what you exactly. use to get on for like, I, I remember getting those yeah. things and it's like a thousand free minutes. Like <laughs> Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes, I remember that too. <laughs> And then you're waiting five minutes to connect. Yep. <laughs> Listen to that dial-up song. And it and it ties up the phone. So if someone's on the internet, yeah. someone also can't be on the phone in the house. And <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's it was a whole thing. And so like I yes. used, you know, the computers at school. And like I sort of learned it at school. Like I, I designed my high school newspaper, for example, and we used PageMaker. We either used Adobe okay, PageMaker. Yeah. Yeah. Page and and I know we, we started off trying to use Quark. And, yeah, work, you know, those <laughs> th- that software would come with these big, I mean, these instruction manuals could choke a horse. Like, yeah, <laughs> it would be so thick. And it's like, it's like a textbook. Like, how am I supposed to read through all this to figure out how to use this software on this thing? And eventually we'll just like, we'll just, we'll just do it by hand. Like, it's just easier to yeah. print and cut <laughs> exactly. and copy and, and all that sort of stuff. So I know what you yeah. mean about kind of having that sort of like, not necessarily on the job training, but like you learned through application. Like you didn't yes, necessarily go to yes. school for it. You learned by doing or you learned by working almost like an apprenticeship in a way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And along with that, just to add briefly, is that in that matter, you learn what you need because mm-hmm. all these programs like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously Adobe Photoshop is it's so deep that even the experts don't use everything. Right. right. But I think a lot of uh, us, us artists and entrepreneurs may it can be daunting, but you may realize that I only need five functions from this program yeah. to run my business. I don't need to know all <laughs> 5,000 and shortcuts and all of that. And so it's really finding what you need and okay, that, that's all I need from this program. And then it's worth it for me to have it to run my business. So Right. And I mean, the chokehold that Adobe and Macromedia, you know, back then as well, yes. but like the chokehold that those products had on the like burgeoning digital design industry cannot be understated. Like I never thought I'd see a day where Photoshop is almost not derided, but like I know a lot of designers now will use Figma over over Photoshop. There was a time when they would use Sketch over Photoshop. I never thought I'd see a time when Photoshop would sort of fall out of favor because it was just, it was everywhere. Yep. Yep. And also I think the, a lot of people are still upset about the subscription model. Oh, yeah. But I, I I guess I get it. You know, you get the updates. You don't have to come up off of $900, right. you know, which a lot of people couldn't back in the day anyway, or they are, they're working on old versions of Photoshop and 
Mm-hmm. And there's, a, like you said, a lot of options now. I, I do a lot of illustration in uh, Procreate on mm. the iPad Pro. So Yeah. I mean, I think Adobe knew that their software was being pirated left and right. Like, yes, I didn't buy Photoshop until the subscription came out. Everything mm-hmm. before then was some cracked version off of <laughs> LimeWire yeah. or yeah. or Kazaa or whatever that I hoped would not give my computer a virus. And sometimes right. it would, you know, but like yeah. that's how I ended up learning because I was like, I can't afford even when yeah. I had my business, I was like, I can't afford the cost yeah. of this. I'll still use this yeah. cracked version because yeah. it works. It does what I need it to do. Like you said, it does the exactly. five things exactly. I need it to do. Why would I pay, you know, this astronomical amount yeah. of money for this piece of software if I can't yeah. use every single part of it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now you've been, you know, a working illustrator in this industry now for like over 25 years. For you, what have been the keys to sustain that longevity? Like we've talked just yeah. now about how technology has really sort of changed the game. Like how do you still kind of keep current and maintain mm-hmm. yourself in this industry? First thing is skill set. When it comes to art, you have to have the skill set. And it's not uh, you know, obviously no disrespect to anyone, but a lot of times people think about art as, you know, it's just a feeling when you just express yourself and and there are some aspects of art that are that way, but there are rules and fundamentals that you learn composition, you know, you have to know anatomy, there's so many things and you have to learn that stuff before you can just venture off and, and, and draw your feelings, if you want to say. And so I really focus on that skill set, learning those things. Also, art is a different pursuit in that everyone else has to be, they understand that I got to be good at it first mm-hmm. before someone's going to hire me. Like if you were a a baker, you know, I got to be able to bake cookies good first. So you're going to be baking a lot. If you're a singer, you you have to show that you can sing. If you're a writer, you have to write the book, right? But oftentimes artists, some artists, new ones anyway, feel, well, I, I want someone to hire me to draw something. Well, you have to show them that you can draw. Yeah. And so I think a lot of artists don't have a, enough of a body of work to show for someone to hire them. So that's what I, I didn't want to do that. And I, I you know, early stages I went through were, okay, you want someone to hire? Then I realized that, no, you have to be drawing and producing things so people can see that you know how to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And when I took that approach, things really just kind of, kind of really started to t- take off. And it can't just be you're practicing. You need to do a project from start to finish. Project from start to finish. People can see that you can do that. The highest level you can do at that time. And so that's what's uh, really helped me. So like working in public and sort of, you know, like they say in math class, like show your work, like that's what's really kind of been a big key for you. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to show that you can, you know, it's not waiting for waiting to be asked to do it or waiting to be hired to do it. And mm-hmm. that's what a lot of artists do. You know, again, no other industry is that way. You know that you have to have this skill at a high level before someone's going to ask you how to, to do it for pay. Yeah. But sometimes artists just wait. I'm waiting for someone to hire me. I'm just sketching in my sketchbook. Well, no, do a project. Even if you hire yourself, quote unquote, hire yourself to do a project, show that you have the chops to do it. How has tech kind of impacted your work? I mean, of course, we've talked about, you yeah. know, Photoshop and things like that. But like mm-hmm. lately over the past, you know, almost nine to 10 months now, the conversation yes. has largely been around like generative art and mid journey yes. and dolly and all yes. this sort of stuff. How does yeah. that, if at all, like incorporate into your work? I have like switched over. I'm almost, ex- well, I still draw because I love the the tactile aspect of just traditional media. Actually, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a paint class this week, but the majority, the bulk of my work is digital now. So mm-hmm. um, I'm drawing on a tablet. With regard to like uh, art, that's well. If I could add one funny thing to me is uh, in the art community, drawing hands because of their nature is difficult for just about every artist starting out. And so, one hilarious thing to me is that AI art can't draw hands either. <laughs> and that, that's something I, I knew someone who well, just recently they produced a book in the. I said, I looked at it, I'm like, wow, that's a nice image. But then I started just from my trained eye, start breaking, wait, no, this this is an AI. Again, not to discredit it, but 
I could tell right away it was AI produced. And then I looked at the hands and they looked atrocious, <laughs> like claws. And I was like, oh, yep, I was right. That's definitely AI. Yeah. And so I don't think I don't see it as a, a battle per se, but uh, I, I use digital aids, if you will. Sometimes I'll, I'll even create a scene with posable characters from looking for a certain pose and I might take a picture of that and then use that as a reference or, mm-hmm. you know, so I use some different aids, but I think you have to have the skill set. The tools can't make you an artist. So you, you got to have the skill set behind it. People can't think, oh, hey, I've got mid journey now. I'm an artist all of a sudden. No, you still need a certain base of knowledge and ability to be able to then use those tools to actually create art. Yeah, I was watching I was watching some video, I think it was from Wired, and it was an AI artist kind of detailing their steps. And like it's all writing for the most part, because you have to like get okay. the prompts yeah. specific yeah. in order for the thing to generate and and yes. all that sort of stuff. And it was fascinating to see it sort of come together, but it didn't feel um it didn't feel like art. It didn't feel like yes. the yeah. The creative process, like, you know, especially with something as, I think, intimate as hand drawing something like, yeah, there's more yeah. that goes into it than I think just a technical skill. I mean, it's, yeah, it's creativity, it's emotion, it's, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of specifically individually, intrinsically, fundamentally human things that go yes. into the creation that the computer just can't do. It can maybe exactly. try to replicate it from other sources. And of course, there's been talk about how these engines kind of crib from other artists, you know? Yeah. But it's not the same. Like I find a lot of AI art has a specific look. It's like heavily shadowed. And it's like a a very specific look where I'm like, yeah, that's AI. Like it doesn't feel like it's from a person because people's art styles are so varied and different, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And it's very static as well. You know, and some of it, it's like, I mean, obviously you've got a, a trained eye to be able to see that, but to, and not to, I don't want to sound kind of silly, but to a person that just says, oh, I like pretty things, but they, they're not into art or no, they don't know art. Right. They could just see an image and wow, it's a pretty image. But, you know, if you've got a little bit of train of a trained eye, you can realize, oh, it's okay. It's nice, but it's just a, it's a static image. There's no emotion. Like you said, you, you could feel that it doesn't have that human element to it. Mm-hmm. It's just produced. It's like a mass produced restaurant versus a high-end restaurant or that little mom-and-pop shop that puts love into the meal, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can tell the difference. Yeah. Like a McDonald's hamburger is going to be different from, (laughs) you know, like the the smash burger place or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a reason that there's always going to be that smash burger. Yeah, you have the McDonald's customers, but there's a lot of people that said, no, I don't go to McDonald's. I already pay a few more dollars for a real burger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for you, because the work that you do sort of involves the client in the process from start to finish, it it would almost feel like introducing AI into it kind of one sort of cheapens it in a way, but then two, I could see how it could make the client think, wait a minute, I could do this myself. Yeah, exactly. You know, definitely good. Definitely. And I I don't think it's going to, you know, who knows what technology, but, there's just what I see certain elements that you can't AI just can't do. Yeah. Know? Yeah. You have to be able to just with what I do with illustration, you have to be able to change the POV. Am I going to go with a bird's eye view or worm's eye view? Mm-hmm. What about the expression on their face? And you can't AI can't do that now. You know, right. you, it can't take a character and then put it through all these emotions and all these angles and add these other elements. just, yeah, so you, you can't replace the, the human element, like you said. Yeah, AI can't get inspired, you know. Exactly. It, it can't get inspired exactly. from a work or or a, yeah. a piece of music or a feeling. It just yeah, it just tries to yeah. recopy and, and regenerate from whatever it's been sort of fed into their model, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So we spoke about, you know, just sort of social media and, and these platforms and stuff. How do you approach marketing and promoting your work? Are there like specific strategies that you found to be pretty effective? I really try to let the work speak, but also letting yourself be known as well. Cause people do, that's something I realized they do like to know 
the artist behind the work. So, you know, periodically posting a picture of yourself with the art or so forth, or even doing a little video or something. You know, everybody wants, I want a million followers and so forth. But then I started realizing I don't need a million followers. I'm booked out with work and I don't, I don't know how many I got on Instagram. I don't even think a thousand, but it's, I'm booked with work there. I have more work that I can do. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of really changed my whole thought process. And then I don't want to be putting all my energies or time in just into social media when I want to put that into the creative process. And it has worked for me. You know, it has worked. I focus on on my skill set and focus on putting projects out and more work comes. And so it's I think having the presence, though, obviously is so crucial. Having a website, I think, is very valuable because it really gives a place where this is your work and you're not competing for attention like on a social media platform. But then you can have those platforms that direct people to your site as well. But uh, so I think it's necessary in kind of today's age, especially with the visual aspect of uh, doing art. But focus on the work, though. Don't spend all of your time social media marketing and then you forget to actually be producing artwork. Right. (laughs) Because the followers don't necessarily translate into work like it may translate into visibility into more eyes on it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like. And also, you may be attracting the wrong type of clients or the wrong type (laughs) of people, you know, the tire kickers and the the low ballers and stuff like they see what you do and they don't get the value in it. They -hmm. just see it and think like it's something that could be, you know, potentially easily replicated. Actually, you know, kind of going back a little bit to the AI conversation, one thing I thought that was super interesting is when people started getting those like AI art, like AI generated avatars out. Yeah. How many people were... I guess complaining, but they were like, wait a minute, Uh, you paid for that? Yeah. You paid for that? You paid how much for that? Like some people, I mean, and the cost wasn't, the cost wasn't what it would cost you to actually commission an artist. It was much, much, much cheaper. Like maybe $5, $8, $20, you know, for several images, not just one image. And it was so funny seeing people like, you paid for that? I can't, you, you paid money for that? I'm like, if you were to pay an artist to do it, you would pay the artist. Do you expect it to be free? Like, yeah. Oh man, that's a whole other story too, because art is no other industry. Well, maybe, maybe photography possibly, but no other industry do people expect you to work like for free. Because people think like it's just maybe some God-given talents or you're supposed to share for free. And, and, you know, there's times obviously where you'll be giving with your skill set. But, you know, you don't go to a mechanic and say, hey, if you fix my car, I will tell all of my friends that you're a great mechanic and that's going to get you some more work. But people do that to <laughs> artists. People do that to artists all the time. <laughs> It's hilarious, man. Yeah. Hilarious. I'll tell you from doing this show, they do it to podcasters too. They're yeah, like, exactly, Oh, you're just yeah. you're just talking it to a mic. Like you just yeah. all you're doing is just press and record. That's it. N- no, exactly. there's there's so yeah. much more yeah, they don't that see goes into it. it. And then when you try mm-hmm. to show them, they feel like, oh, well, this is too much. You know, once they get an yeah. idea <laughs> of what the process is and how it is a skilled thing, yes. then it sort of turns them off from then it's like, well, yeah, you know. Yep, exactly. And and to speak to what we're touching on, that's what, again, versus just I want to be become a social media marketer. Yeah. That's what has gotten more work, focusing on the work and then the relationships that I build with my clients. And when they we onboard a new author and they see what's involved, they see what you're doing to bring their vision to life. That has gotten me more work than marketing on social media. Mm. And so that's when it's like that shift of, hey, I'll post and I'll, you know, talk about stuff. And plus, I, I'm not a salesman per se. Yeah. So I'm not trying to hard sell. Hey, come buy my book. No, here's, we created this book. It was a fun project. You can look at it a little bit. And people has bought have bought from that versus me trying to hard sell them. Right. And with regard to more work, because then that author speaks highly of the, the experience they had working with you. Mm-hmm, that has gotten mm-hmm. me so much more work where I have other authors call it. So-and-so, I just finished up a book with uh, Erica Flores, first time author. It's been an amazing process. That has led to more work. And so, yeah, focusing on the skill set and obviously you're working with clients is uh, far exceeds just trying to beg people to buy, buy your products online. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. Like, and also because if you're focusing on social media, I mean, as we've seen, you know, fairly recently, these platforms can change at the drop of a dime. If you're busy trying to chase the algorithm, if you're busy trying to sort of market or make your work fit into whatever this opaque algorithm is in terms of visibility or something like that, it takes away from the work. And I mean, I think we certainly see it with people that create content for video, like YouTubers, TikTokers. It's a lot to try to figure it out. And even on maybe non-video platforms like Twitter or Instagram, I mean, Instagram is still pictures, but a lot of Instagram now is video. Yes, it is. And then with Twitter and this Twitter blue, they've changed the weighting of how people see your work unless you pay for a subscription. Like the platforms have gotten so... I don't want to say unreliable, but they certainly have gotten so caustic and yes. to the point where you can't really depend on those to get the word out or to get the work out. Exactly. Like, it helps. It still is a megaphone, yeah. but you can't depend on just that to yeah. be the thing that sort of propels your work or propels you into you know whatever the next level is. Definitely. And that's why, like I mentioned, there, having your own website is so crucial. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I started before before the internet and well not just before the internet but when the internet was starting out it was before all of the social media platforms mm-hmm. and so i had a website you know even way back then whereas i see a lot of artists now that pretty good work but they don't have a website and it's just shocking to me and they think i'm just going to get all kinds of work from instagram maybe if you were in the inception but if you're starting out right now and think i'm going to start an instagram and get all kinds of work and you don't have a website not <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I know even from just trying to like reach artists or, or folks to have on the show, yes. it's always tough to get them on if they don't have a site because yeah, even if I send them a DM, yeah. the way that the filtering is, they may not ever see it. If I send them something on Instagram, if I send them something on Twitter, exactly. if they even allow you to send them a message and it's like, well, do you want yep. people to contact you or not? Like, <laughs> exactly. What's, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. How do you balance your artistic pursuits with like your personal life and responsibilities? I mean, you mentioned your marriage, you've got three kids, like, how do you balance all of that? Well, again, with booking, uh, we don't just, I don't just accept any and all projects, Um, you know, be with a privilege to be in that position uh, where I don't have to take all work that comes my way. I can be a little choosy and making sure that I'm prioritizing that time with my, my wife. Uh, been we just hit 25 years congratulations uh, so that's a huge milestone and um and, you know with our three girls and prioritizing that time you know and you know i, I love doing this you know obviously there's a, a, a monetary component to take care of my family and so forth but i often think about too is that there's time that i can't sell a client that's for my wife mm-hmm. or my family but then i often think but the time that i do sell you, if you will, you're not paying just for that project. You're paying for the time I'm not being with them. Mm. And so when that kind of clicked in my brain many years ago, that changes your margin, that changes the value of what you're offering. And in time to ask me to not be with my wife and my girls, like I said, some time I can't give you, but the time you're going to take from them, you know, it's worth something to me. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be important. That's why the project has to resonate with me. So um, that's how I really keep that balance, you know. That is so deep. That is probably one of the deepest mm. things I've heard on this show, and I've been doing this for 10 wow. years. <laughs> no, wow. seriously, it's like you're not just paying for my my expertise and time. You're paying for, like, time away from, like, yes. the people that I care about. That is, that's yes. deep. Wow. Yeah. That resonated yeah. with me. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. And, and with that, I mean, if I could just compound on top of that, right, it's where... You know, obviously with projects, you're not paid in an hourly sense, but since a lot of people understand the concept of getting paid hourly. Mm-hmm. So if you ask a person that, would you not spend time with your family for five bucks an hour? Most people would say no. <laughs> you know, and so if you just keep going up the ladder with the amount, you know, there may be a threshold where people would think about it, but that starts to help you to appreciate that there's a value add there that. I'm not just going to not spend time with my family and, and exclusively give mental and emotional energy to your project for any amount. Eh, no, you know, there's a, a value, a value thing to that. And also, like we touched on earlier, 
I'm, I forget the book that I read, but they said that don't spend time doing something that you could pay someone else minimum wage to do. You know, obviously when we're starting out, but, and that's what has almost changed my brain. And mm. that's what made me, like we talked about earlier, put together a team and I've got assistants and people to handle that because it just doesn't make sense for me to do something that I could pay someone 10, 15, 20, 30 bucks an hour to do when my time, I could be doing something that makes way more than that. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it doesn't add up, you know? And so a lot of people think, well, I'm giving away money. I can keep that. But yeah, but your time is a non-renewable resource. Mm -hmm. So you gotta, the time that you do sell, it's gotta be at the right price. Yeah. And I think that becomes even more important, especially when you, when you have a family, when you start getting older, when, when other members of your family start getting older, like there's no amount of money that can buy that time back. Exactly. Exactly. When you look back at your career, is there a particular moment or or a particular experience that stands out to you the most? Man, I have a few, but you know what? One I would say is when I I got an award at a jury art exhibition here in downtown Grand Rapids. That was a, a very nice privilege. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned, you know, starting out with Dudley Graphics, and my my drawing ability was not up to par by any means, any stretch, right? And so to work hard to improve my understanding of light and shadow and composition and all of that, to get to the point where to be accepted into the juried exhibition, again, in the year you're paying to have your artwork reviewed and they can just send you a no. To get accepted, to get the award, excuse me, have my work purchased and so forth, that was a, a milestone where I felt, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And then it really gave me the confidence that I can I can take this, you know, to other levels. What's the most important lesson you say you've learned like throughout your career as an artist? Again, sounds cliche, but to truly stay humble. And humility is something that can slip away. And that's why I say stay humble, because it can be a constant fight for all of us. You know, this is an imperfect person, right? But um to really strive to maintain humility and never stop learning in your craft. And so even when I meet with clients now, I tell them, I said, yes, you're hiring me because I have a skill set that you don't have, but I want to do what's in the best interest of the project, not what's in my best interest. So if you have an idea, uh, even though you can draw, please tell me if you can defend your idea, because I look at it as an illustrator, I need to be able to defend my choices that I make artistically that, oh, I, the composition is this way because of that, that way because of this. But if someone shoots an idea to me and I realize that your idea is better than the one I had, hey, let's make the change to make the project better. So that humility, even in the face of you have a skill set that someone else doesn't have, but that doesn't mean that they can't suggest something that's better. So that's what I really strive for and never stop learning. I mean, I feel like I'm decent at drawing. And I've been learning this craft for over, I mean, since I was a little kid. And some days it feels like I can't draw. <laughs> like, man, what are you doing? And other days it's like, oh, you're pretty good. You, you got this. But yeah, never stop learning. And never think you just got it, got it down. Now, all of your, your daughters can draw too. Is that right? Yes. I, I, I jokingly, you know what they say, joking, but not joking. <laughs> I, I made them uh, learn how to draw. And there were times with each one of them. My oldest is almost 20, well, it's almost almost 20, 16 and 15. And, you know, they would see me drawing and, and I would teach them how to draw. And I didn't tell them that it looked good when it didn't, when they were young. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't like crush their, their feelings, but, you know, <laughs> if something was off, if something was off, I told them, yeah. you know, and I didn't just put it on the refrigerator just because they drew it type of thing. Mm-hmm. And there were times with all of them that there were tears. And, uh, and I would ask them, you know, do you really want to learn how to do this? And they, and with tears in their eyes, each one of them, it's like, yes, I, I do, daddy. And it's like, okay, you see that the eye is crooked. How do we fix it? And uh, it's helped them to, to really grow. And if I could share this brief story with that. Yeah. When I was teaching my oldest how to read, right, it dawned on me that this is hard because 
if you can picture this, right? You know how we write, the kid learns how to write the alphabet. Mm-hmm. What I did was, so like to make an A, there's three lines that you use to make an A, right? And then there's one line and two bumps to make a B in this curved line to make a C. So what I did was I, I wrote an A, but I kept all the lines just, imagine doing the first line on this part of the page, second line over here. And I did the whole alphabet that way on a piece of paper. And it looked like a jumbled mess. Mm-hmm. But then I thought that I'm asking my daughter to figure this out, learn how to put the lines together so that they can make all the letters. And then we asked them to learn the name of the letters, the sound of the letters, how to put them together to make a word, how to put those together to make a sentence, a paragraph. And then you got to do it with math. And I thought, <laughs> man, learning how to draw is easier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing, Maurice, is like, there's no reference for that. They have to learn it, though. Yeah, you have to. And so when it hit me that, okay, if you can learn how to read, how to write, and how to do math, you can learn how to draw. And then this is kind of a soapbox of mine, but I, I won't belabor it. But when I realized that, I realized, okay, my girls can learn how to draw. They're going to learn how to draw, at least the basics. And another thing, at a class that I got to teach, and I'll keep this short, is that I told someone, they said, well, no, it's just a talent. I said, well, yeah, you can have a little bit of ability, but it gives you maybe a one out of one to three out of a 10, right? Mm-hmm. But I said, we make kids for 13 plus years learn how to read, learn how to write, and learn how to do math. Everything else is optional. If we made you from kindergarten to 12th grade, you had to draw every year and you were tested on it. Everybody would leave school knowing how to draw at least decently. Mm-hmm. But if your kid says, ah, it's hard, you say, okay, quit. You can, let's try play saxophone or try soccer. But if your kid says, I'm struggling with reading, you're going to learn how to read. Yeah. And we, we make them do it. Yeah. And so when I, that dawned on me, I was like, okay, my girls will learn how to draw. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that way of of looking at it. And you're right. I mean, you know, as kids, we sort of start off with, I think, a lot of applied art education. Like there's, you know, yes. in kindergarten and whatever, there's finger painting, there's drawing and there's coloring. Yes. And I remember being in like elementary school and we would get these sheets of paper that have like it's blank at the top and then there's rule like lined rules at the bottom for writing. And you had yes. to draw something at the top and then tell the story at the bottom mm-hmm. of it. I actually still have them. I still k- kept okay. all of my from, from, uh, from being a kid, but like the more, the older I got, I remember like art stuff just kept getting phased out, phased out, phased out. Yeah. Um, I, I had taken like gifted courses. I think they, they called it enrichment back then, but okay. they were gifted courses. And like, it felt like those were the only times when I got to do something that felt creative because everything else yes. was towards some specific application like you're learning english to learn how to read and how to write you're learning math for you know those applications and stuff like that and just the older you get even if you are really into art and drawing and stuff like that it's increasingly treated as a hobby and not as also like a fundamental thing to understand in just the world that we live in because you know as as you alluded to well you didn't allude to this really in the interview but before that if we talked about this you know everything is designed Mm -hmm. Everything yes. that we use in the modern world has went through some lens yep. or filter yes. of design in some capacity. You know, the chair we yep. sit in, the clothes we wear, exactly. the pencils we write with, all of yep. those are designed. And because we interact with these designed things on such a regular basis, almost on a subconscious basis, we know yeah. when something is not designed well. Exactly. We, we know when like this pen is bad or this shirt, yep. you know, doesn't feel right. Like we, we know that we yeah. may not have the language for it, you yep. know, sort of speaking to what we talked about with like English and math and stuff, because that's not really taught to us as we get older. So true. So true. And I remember when I, I, someone asked me, Oh, what do you do? I said, oh, you know, I do, I draw and do illustration. And the look on her face, <laughs> was she, and she said this to me, man, that, she said, you might as well have told me you could fly. You can draw. And she was just so shocked. Like, and I was like, yeah, I've been drawing and learning this for, for decades. And but you know what I've found is that artists, you know, specifically with you who visual artists, right? We've done it before there was any incentive to do it. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's what I think makes it so amazing. It's kind of like when someone sees someone that can do backflips and do all this stuff, but they're not in the Olympics. They're not getting paid. It's like, wow, how did you learn how to do all that? They did it because they loved it. Yeah. And another point I'll make is that if, and it shows that if you're given the right incentive and you can do it because of the right incentive, that shows that you could do it all along. Like, I use the example sometimes of Usain Bolt, right? Fastest, mm-hmm. fastest man. He's he run 100 meters in 9.58, I think it was. Now, if someone says, hey, I need you to do that in a year, you need to be able to run a sub 10 100 meters. I can't do it, right? It's There's no amount of money. I can't do it. But if someone says, okay, I need you to learn how to draw by next year decently, and I'm going to give you $10 million, what happens? You start practicing every single day. Mm-hmm. And guess what? At the end of the year, you're going to be pretty decent at drawing and get that $10 million, which means you could do it and all, all along, but you didn't have the incentive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when as artists, we learn, we love it, you know, so you learn how to do it. And then later you make a few dollars from it. And it seems amazing because most people, like you said, they veer off that creative path, and, you know, and then you get older where you need money. And then yeah. I haven't learned how to draw. So no one's going to pay me with the skill set I have now. So I got to go work over here, you know, it makes money. So, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an awesome thing. Everybody can learn how to draw, but it's cool being one of the, the few in the world that can, I can, you know. <laughs> do you have a, a dream project or something that you'd love to do one day? Dream project. Well, actually, one of my, my dream projects is a book that I wrote. The book that I just finished up, I'm the author and illustrator. Okay. And collaborator with uh, Michael Chambers. He's featured in the book, but I'm actually the author and the illustrator of the book. So it's my book per se. But my dream book, actually, I wrote uh, a couple years ago and I have just got around to illustrating my own work. <laughs> and this one is called Duddles in the Big Dilemma. And it is a book about that very thing we just discussed about learning to draw and how everybody thinks it's, it's magical, but it's more work than just talent. And it's amazing to me is that in the book and kind of explains it. No one says you're just an amazing gifted plumber or an amazing gifted carpenter or, you know, you just naturally know how to whatever. Right. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to the arts, people want to put this this fairy dust on it. (laughs) You know, whereas was it? I think Malcolm Gladwell is in his book Outliers. He said that, you know, you've never seen someone who is good but they haven't put in the practice and the yeah. work, deliberate practice. And so that's one of my dream projects there is to finish that, the illustrations for it and really get that book out there. It's called Duddles and the Dilemma. I, well, I won't, don't want to give a lot away, but I mean, I'm going to finish this project probably within the next year or so. And there's a series to the book as well. Okay. But uh, it's about him realizing that, that it, it's not all fairy dust. You got to put in work to learn to draw. It's not a magical thing. And that's just the truth of it. And a lot of people don't want to believe that. But right. I wish I wish there was just a download that gave me all this knowledge <laughs> that I've learned over over the last 30 plus years. I wish it was that easy, you know, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to that end, like, what do you see as like the next chapter of your career? Like, what do you want to do in the next like five years or so? What, what do you see yourself? Yeah. Well, more more books right now. As I mentioned, we, we just launched a book with Michael Chambers, Lil Boogaloo and the Clean Sweet, Lil Boogaloo Shape and the Clean Sweet. And so I see the direction of doing more art talks and events with kids. We're actually partnering with uh, a nonprofit here locally. I mentioned about the breakdancing school there in Georgia, but there's one in Colorado that we're going to be touching base with. And, hmm. and so I think that's going to really be exploding. Uh, we've already talked to, Rockwell Dance Academy about a book project. And so that's, that's on the horizon. And in the next couple of years, um, just more books, more books, man, more books. Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here, Chris, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, about the books, where can they find that information online? Well, my website is chrisdudleyart.com. And that's where you can see, you know, my, my portfolio, my body of work, and, and you can reach out and contact me directly through that. 
but my books are available through HudsonDawnPublishing.com. That I'm connected with uh, HudsonDawnPublishing.com, and that's where uh, re- all of the books that I've illustrated are available. And that's been been awesome being connected with them. I actually designed the logo, and my oldest daughter she launched a publishing company. She put a team together. I was joking around about it, designed a logo. <laughs> she launched it during the pandemic. Got with an artist and made a book and got it out. And I was like, wow. Wow. And so since then, she has worked with, wow, probably 10 authors. And, and, you know, I've illustrated a lot of the books, but she's working with, I think, five new authors right now. And that'll be on that site. So, um, yeah, it, it's been awesome. She has printeries. It's established printeries locally in, in Michigan, actually, in mm. the, the west and east side of the state. You know, got warehousing. So she's she's taken that to the next level beyond what I could I, I ever thought that, that could be. That's amazing. It's a, it's a whole family yeah. operation. It's a family affair. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> HudsonDownPublishing.com. Awesome. And actually, you can, the, the recent book, you can, that can be, you can read the, the intro of the book right there online. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Chris Dudley, I want to thank you so, so much for taking time out and coming on the show. I mean, it always warms my heart to talk to people that have been doing this kind of work for years on years on years because the longevity in just this industry is something that you don't really see from black creatives. Like we can get burned out, we can get discouraged, et cetera. And it, it really feels like you have found a method and a calling and a passion in this work. And you found a way to not only sustain it for yourself, but also for your family and for the community that you're in. And I think that's something that is is super inspiring. I think any artist wants to to make sure that their work has an impact in the world. And, mm-hmm. and most certainly I can tell just from your passion about it and, and how you talk about it and just the quality of the work that, you're making an impact in the world with everything that you do. So thank you so much for for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been such a privilege. I, I truly appreciate it and look forward to touching base with you soon. Big, big thanks to Chris Dudley. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Chris and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. Hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter and we're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, you could follow us on Amazon Music, or you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't had one of those in a while. You can also leave us a voicemail message. We have a hotline, 626-603-0310. Would love to hear from you. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.